This is Genetic Jackpot. I'm Shannon Halligan. And I'm Nick Sloan. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the issue of untested rape kits and how that is preventing justice from being done and the role of DNA evidence in helping uh, victims of rape and sexual assault find their criminals who were responsible for the crimes. Yeah, and I think that this is uh, really interesting and really important because there is such a huge number of these backlogged kits all across the country. Absolutely. According to In the Backlog, which is an advocacy group that does what it says it wants to do, tries to end the untested rape kit backlog, there are approximately 225,000 untested rape kits, which is an unbelievable number. And when you can compare that nationally, crime statistics indicate that there are 320,000 rapes and sexual assaults each year in the United States. That's it's a pretty jaw-dropping number. On both both of those numbers are shocking when you just consider it, especially when there are 13,000 murders in the United States. It just it's it's been those numbers are unbelievable when you compare it to other violent crimes out there. Yeah, and you know I just want to point out you know real fast this is from endthebacklog uh, dot org and it says that since most jurisdictions do not have a system for counting or tracking rape kits, they can't even be sure of the total number of untested rape kits nationwide. And additionally, uh, Nick, you talk about this. There's no federal law mandating the tracking and testing of rape kits. So it's estimated that there are hundreds of thousands of untested kits in police and crime lab storage facilities throughout the country. And so even though, you know, you're talking about uh, Kansas and Missouri specifically uh, in your interview, this obviously is much more wide reaching than that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's not only that, not only do they go back decades, but if these kits were tested and they led to arrest, they could prevent future crimes. So not only does it help the victims of the past at least move on a little bit, it, you know, I don't know, some understandably never recover mentally, but it could also prevent victims down, down the road from suffering because statistics show that one in six women will be raped or sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's, also a topic of conversation, too, with the recent Me Too movement, and then there's been more discussion about sexual assault and harassment, and that, you know, this could lead to more victims deciding that they do want to press charges and bring their case to trial rather than not moving forward and bringing any more attention uh, to what happened. And, and one of the things that uh, your interview, Nick, we bet you'll go into uh, a little bit more, but, you know, one thing I think it's important to point out is the fact that these these kits are not just the DNA testing, um, but there's also, you know, other evidence that's collected when a victim goes to the hospital following an assault, and that includes the swabs of possible DNA as well as, you know, photographic evidence and evidence that, uh, this assault occurred. So, um, you know, and it does take time for DNA to be processed, as we know, and, and it's not a simple process, although uh, it seems like with the technology surrounding DNA testing, it, it seems like it's being done faster. And I think a lot of um, police departments are able to do it in a faster time, but there's still the issue with this huge backlog that just you know, starting from, 
you know, number one, it's, it takes a long time. Um, and in some cases, like we said, go, that goes back decades. Absolutely. And that, that timeline and what exactly is considered an untested rape kit is part of the discussion that I have with our guest today, uh, Victoria Pickering. She's the coordinator of education and outreach for the Metropolitan Organization to Counter Sexual Assault here in Kansas City, Missouri. And the reason we reached out to Victoria was it is uh, in late May, early June, there was a report out of the state of Missouri about there were around 5,000 untested rape kits. The exact number was uh, 4,889. And we got to say at least here, because not all police departments were involved with the Attorney General Josh Hawley's report here. Not all of the police departments participated for various reasons. Uh, not, not enough time to dip into that. But just uh, this was kind of the latest example of, oh, my God, there are thousands of kids out there. How can this happen? So what Victoria and I talk about is, number one, we, we dip into what a rape kit does and how it works. I mean, not everybody knows what it, what it does, how it works. Number two, what can be attained, what type of ev- evidence can be attained from that rape kit, which is obviously DNA. Number three, background and how this happened in Missouri, about, the, about how this study came about, why it happened. And number four, why does this happen? How, how, I mean, it seems like every other month we see a headline, a horrific headline about how there are hundreds or thousands of rape kits in a jurisdiction, in a city, in a state that have went untested for years. And then number, and then the kind of the fifth point we dip into is how can we change this? Can you uh, talk about what a, what a kid actually does and how it can help uh, victims of sexual assault and rape? Absolutely. So what's commonly referred to as a rape kit is also known as a sexual assault forensic examination. Um, so the kit itself is actually um, a collection of evidence um, related to the crime that has occurred. So when a sexual assault survivor seeks medical attention after an assault, They'll go to the hospital and they'll meet with um, what's called a sexual assault nurse examiner or SANE. And that person does a specialized examination, um, which is really for two purposes. The first is to identify if there are any injuries related to the assault that need to be attended to by a physician. Um, And then the second um, is to document that um, the assault occurred, document what occurred during the assault, and then also to collect evidence of that assault um, through things such as photographs, um, swabs for possible DNA, um, or um, other medical documents um, that could identify what occurred during the exam. Um, what does, you know, for people who may not know the legal system as well, or who may who may just be unaware of the 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 issues surrounding the red the quote the red kit backlog. What what does that mean? I mean when people see that in the headlines as they did in Missouri when Josh Hawley talked about the backlog in in, in the state of Missouri, what does that mean and how does that happen? Mm-hmm. So there's kind of two different things that people refer to as the rate kit backlog. The first is um sort of a systemic issue with the the length of time that it takes from um, when a survivor has the examination and the kit is collected until that kit is fully processed by the crime lab. So that's sort of the first thing that's 
referred to as the backlog. So, for example, it may take, in, depending on the jurisdiction and the crime lab that's working with them, it may take anywhere from six months to a year after an assault occurs before all of the uh, forensic evidence has been examined by the crime lab um, and DNA uh, tested for matches. So that's one type of backlog. It's just um, that oftentimes we are under-resourced and um, it may take a very long time for the evidence to be processed um, in order to be able to fully investigate a case or in order to be able to prosecute a case. Um, so that's one issue. The other issue um, that is referred to as the backlog is when kits actually, as opposed to it taking a really long time to get tested, it's when kits are collected, they're handed over to law enforcement um, for um, processing at the crime lab and, and as part of an investigation of a crime that's occurred, and those kits don't get tested. So it's not that it's taken a long time, it's that they hadn't been tested at all. Is there a goal for a time frame for these kids to be processed? You know, we don't um, give recommendations on specific time frames, but um, there is, I, I think, the general goal for folks who work as advocates on behalf of survivors of sexual violence. Um, the, our goal is that when a person um, puts themselves in a, in a situation where um, they are vulnerable and, and, and specifically talking about going to um, the, the get the rape kit exam. That's a really vulnerable experience. Um, it takes a lot of strength to go through that entire exam. And we think if a survivor um, comes forward and goes through that very intense and very invasive process of having evidence collected off of their body as a crime scene, um, that we as a society should put a high priority on, on getting that tested as as quickly as possible within the constraints of the criminal justice system. So I don't have like a specific number of days or months. I, we do recognize that the actual processing of a kit can take a while um, at a crime yeah. lab. It's not something, you know, like we see on CSI where they, you know, <laughs> punch it into a computer and four minutes later all the results are back. Um, but, but we also, um, we know that having to put an investigation on hold for six months or nine months or sometimes over a year, um, that can really hinder a survivor's capacity um, to focus on healing when there's um, no real answers within the criminal justice system. And we also know that that often delays an investigation or a potential prosecution, which could allow somebody to commit further acts of sexual violence um, while um, that crime is being investigated. And you know, one reason we reached out to you was what happened late last month in the state of Missouri. Uh, Attorney General Josh Hawley announced that there are roughly 4,900 kids in their backlog. Was first of all, before I before I ask about the psychological impact for victims or future victims, was that a surprising number for you? Sadly, that wasn't shocking at all. Um, we've been through a um, similar process. So um, the organization I work for works both in Kansas and Missouri, and we've been through a similar um, process in Kansas um, and looking at the backlog and then actually going through and testing the backlog of kits in Kansas. And so um, given the comparable, you know, the, the comparative sizes of the two states, 
um, to hear that there were 5,000 kids in Missouri was not surprising, um, particularly yeah. when you have cities um, in this country, um, Detroit, for example, that had over 10,000 just within one city. Wow. And how much, I mean, as you as you just pointed out, Missouri, Kansas are not the only places where stories like these have come out. Just, I mean, over the past year, the awareness of sexual assault is, has really increased because of what's going on with Weinstein and or other celebrities but in politicians. But what type of psychological impact could stories like these leave for victims? Well, we know that any time that sexual violence is, um, kind of on at the front of our minds culturally, it can have a, an impact on those who've experienced sexual violence in the past. Um, and we also know um, that there is a potential for impact on survivors in the future. So if somebody is watching a documentary or seeing the news or, you know, reading an article that says that um, there are factors that have contributed to sexual assault kids not being tested, um, and then if somebody experiences violence in the future, they may ask the question, is it worth it to go to the hospital? Um, do I really want to go through this um, and report this um, if it's not going to be um, taken seriously or if it's not going to be tested in a timely fashion? Um, and so I think um, we at MOXA are strong advocates for um, talking about this issue and really raising um, issues around sexual violence to the forefront of our cultural conversations. Um, and we need to make sure that when topics like this come up in the news, we really need to be making sure there's some kind of resolution. Um, because if all we're hearing is there are 5,000 kids that haven't been tested and we don't find out what the next steps are or we don't identify that those 5,000 kids have been have been assessed as part of a process to prevent this from happening again in the future, um, then we are sending a message that can have an impact on survivors in the future. Um, I also think that this, um, when we find out about situations that contribute to backlogs, um, it can make us question the response that our society has um, to survivors. So if they're, um, similarly, if there was another type of crime, that um, had delays in, in investigation, someone might think, well, if I'm a victim of that type of crime, then I'm obviously not a big priority. Um, and I think that's the, the impact that this type of stuff has on survivors is it can make survivors who are already in a vulnerable situation and feel that their culture or their society or their community doesn't prioritize justice for them. Is there a solution to reduce the backlog or, and obviously down the road, hopefully end it. Absolutely. So one thing that I would really encourage you and, and your listeners to look at are um, the reports that have come from cities and states around the country that have gone through the process of both evaluating their backlogs and eliminating their backlogs. Um, what's really great about um, the sexual assault kit initiatives um, around the country is that it's not just about looking at what we have and getting through the testing of those kits, but it's also looking at why did it happen in the first place and how do we prevent it in the future. So um, the Kansas Bureau of Investigations just put out a report um, identifying what their recommendations are moving forward. Um, and one of the recommendations was that there be sufficient resources um, so that um, all kids can be tested. Um, and 
and that would that would help prevent um, the backlog because the backlog, like I said, some of it is about resources and some of it is about priority. Um, so if we can change on a cultural level the priorities that we place on addressing issues of sexual assault, if we can work with our community partners to take all reports of sexual assault seriously, the way we take all reports of homebreaking seriously, um, then that would address some of the issues around priority. Um, but there's, the other piece of it is resources, and so there needs to be resources dedicated to funding our local crime labs um, so that they um, aren't having to pick and choose um, which cases, you know, get tested first, um, making sure there are plenty of well-trained um, individuals who work within that system so that um, they're not having to ask the question, you know, do I process the evidence for a murder case or a sexual assault case because they only have the resources to do one in a, in a particular time. Um, so I think those are some of the solutions. Um, I also think on a larger cultural level, we have to start talking more openly about the prevalence of sexual assault. We have to start breaking through some of the stereotypes um, so that people know what it really is and what it really looks like. Um, and then when we have a better understanding, a better societal understanding of the impact of sexual assault and the way it affects our communities, um, then as time goes by, people who are responsible for investigating these crimes, for prosecuting these crimes, and for holding other community members accountable for committing these types of crimes, um, I think we'll have a, a better response when we all have a shared value that this is something that is never a victim's fault and is something that's never okay. Absolutely. And to wrap it up with, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the solutions that you mentioned just now are kind of on the government level. Uh, is there anything our listeners can do, whether it's in Kansas City, to help your organization or nationwide to help other similar organizations? Are there are there anything you know listeners can do on the ground? I guess a grassroots effort to help out. Absolutely. So I always tell folks if you see that there is a, a concern that you care about in in the way that our um, criminal justice system is working, reach out to your elected officials um, on the local level, on the state level, and on the federal level. Um, there are um, sexual assault kit initiative grants that states and municipalities can apply for from the federal government. If your state is applying for one of those grants, reach out to your members of Congress and say we want you know we want to encourage the federal government to give grants to the state of Missouri or to the city of Kansas City or whatever that looks like, um, so that there are enough resources. Um, and then, on a basic level, I think what we can all do is talk with our friends, talk with our kids, talk with our loved ones about sexual assault. And when somebody has the courage and the strength to come forward and disclose to us that they've gone through something like this, we believe them and we support them. Again, that was Victoria Pickering, who is the coordinator of education and outreach for the Metropolitan Organization to Counter Sexual Assault. And they're based in Kansas City and they work for both victims in Missouri and Kansas. And I thought she made a lot of interesting points there. 
particular, you know, I think the thing that not necessarily surprising but discouraging is that this was no this report for her was no shock. You know, she was not surprised by it. It's almost become expected to see some of these reports come out, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, and you know, I think we've known about this for years too. Um, a lot of times, uh, like she said, that, that there's just these police departments, these crime labs, they're just under-resourced. And so it takes a long time for the whole process to work out, the whole system um, to get these uh, kits into evidence and have everything evaluated. So, you know, it does take it does take some time. And, you know, going back to this and the backlog.org, um, you know, they are making strides and um over the course of the last two years, uh, this website says that over 20 states have passed laws requiring sexual assault kits, audits, or some type of mandatory submission guidelines. And so that is um, things are starting to change. And um, but once again, it's it's it, everything is a kind of case by case basis and also state by state. So um, you know, it's a lot of information out there and it's a, a difficult thing to as we know with with the system it's uh, to get change and i think this is uh you know a topic we've talked about before and you know we're dedicating an episode to this um right now and i'm sure that we're going to talk about it again as there are other cases and other um states that change their laws and it's just you know i think evidence once again that dna is becoming so much more a part of, um, you know, our lives, that part of science, part of, you know, criminal um, cases. So I think that, you know, this is just another example of, of ways that DNA evidence can help a victim and then also, um, you know, just figuring out how we use this um, information in, in our daily lives right now, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look, if you've been following our Facebook page on uh, the Genetic Jackpot Facebook page, we've been posting articles about how the smallest DNA sample can make a difference. You know, whether it's, you know, uh, somebody using their fingernails to get skin, whether it's somebody, whether it's bodily fluid. I mean, it's, it just shows you, I mean, when you read those stories, it blows you, it blows your mind about how the smallest form of DNA can help out. But it also reminds you the importance of collecting evidence, and that's what this discussion about the rape kits is about. Because that's that's the first way, that's the first important thing that can be done after a rape has occurred is to gather this evidence. And as you can see, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. But the biggest thing that needs to happen is they need to be tested, and hopefully this discussion will help make that happen. Hopefully more reports will make that happen down the road, and you know, hopefully. Uh, Hopefully it happens. Bringing awareness, yeah. And then also, you know, coming up, we took we took a little bit of a, a break this this summer as we've been putting together a few of our our other episodes that we're going to be talking about on genetic jackpot. You know, some of the other things that we're going to be discussing in future episodes also include um, how DNA and genetics are um, being used to make us healthier and how we can use, how we can tailor, um, you know, what genetics we've been given to become um, healthier. And then also, you know, when we talked about the last few episodes, I I talked about, I guess, <laughs> um, my story with my uh, DNA testing and uh, discovering my long lost, uh, my long lost brother. And so uh, 
coming up in a future episode, we will hear from him about what he thought when, um, you know, I bombarded him with, with this information. So um, a lot that we have coming up uh, on Genetic Jackpot. Make sure you check us out on our website. We're on iTunes and then also on Facebook and Twitter. This is Genetic Jackpot. <laughs>